Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. This week, we'll hear Senior Pastor Rob O'Neill give his sermon titled, Patterns for Praying. How can we have a rewarding prayer life? Jesus shows us how in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's join Pastor Rob now as he begins with a word of prayer. Let's pray together. God, we confess to you today that you are our Father in heaven, and it gives us such great joy to call you that. We praise you today, God, because you're holy. Father, we're overwhelmed by your many virtues. And so, God, today we want to be available to you for you to use us in whatever way you desire to build your kingdom. Heavenly Father, in your presence today, we come before you asking you to give us everything that we need for this day. God, in this moment, what we need is to hear from you, from your word, for you to teach us. But as we come into your presence, God, we confess before you openly that we're sinners, and we ask your forgiveness. And God, going forward, we ask for your protection from temptation and from evil. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. How can we have a rewarding prayer life? In some ways, it probably even seems a bit of an odd question to ask a rewarding prayer life. Now, about a week ago, I had the opportunity to be together with my youngest son. And when you think about being together with one of your kids, you can obviously see how that could be a rewarding experience. My youngest son is 21 years old. He is in college, and we are not doing life close to one another in proximity. So any time I get to spend with him is precious. But we got the opportunity to do that on a lake, There were jet skis involved. My son loves things that are fast. He loves taking a little bit of risk. And he had the opportunity to do both of those things on a jet ski on a lake that day. And when he pulled that jet ski back into the dock, there was a smile from ear to ear on his face. Now, can a prayer life be rewarding in the way that riding a jet ski can be? And can a prayer life be rewarding in the way that A dad seeing his son become an adult joyfully and competently. Can can a prayer life bring us that kind of reward? And can a prayer life be rewarding? Is that the right word to attach to it? In Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus implies that our prayer lives can indeed be rewarding. At the beginning of Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about the fact that there are religious habits and practices that we have, and he warns that there are right ways and wrong ways to do them, and he speaks about the fact that in doing them the wrong way, there's a reward that we might lose. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus says, "'Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them.'" For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is saying if we practice our religious habits in front of other people to be seen by them, then that is its own reward. They think better of us, and that is the reward. We cannot expect to get an additional reward from our Father in heaven, which implies that 
there may be some kind of reward that God gives us as we practice religious habits. In fact, as we continue in Matthew chapter 6 and we see Jesus talking explicitly about prayer, we are going to hear him say that there is a reward for our prayer life that we can expect from our Father in heaven. And so how can we have a rewarding prayer life? We human beings are built to pray. It's fundamental to who we are. And being able to connect with God in prayer is important to us. And so today we're going to look at ways that we can get and have a rewarding prayer life. As we do so, we're going to find two things that we should not do, two don'ts, and two things that we should do, two do's. And we're going to start with the don'ts, because we find first that don't. Don't pray to impress anyone other than God. If you want to have a rewarding prayer life, don't pray to impress anyone other than God. And in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, we find Jesus warning us against praying to impress anyone other than God. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you, will reward you. So now Jesus is talking about the fact here that we are wired to pray. We begin with that assumption and understanding. Do you know that Americans have been polled and it turns out that 55% of us pray on a daily basis? Can you imagine that? 55% of us claim at least to pray on a daily basis. And when you ask, okay, so in addition to that, how many of you perhaps pray weekly or monthly, so on a regular basis? Well, that number goes way up. And if you ask Christians the same question, how many of you pray daily, weekly, or at least monthly, the number goes up even higher. And you say, yeah, 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 okay, I get it, I expect that. We pray, Christians pray in particular, but here's a shocking statistic. They ask non-religious people, so people who don't profess to have any particular belief in God and no particular religious affiliation or practices, how many of you pray on a daily basis? And 20% of them say, oh yeah, I pray every day. I don't know to whom or why, but I do. I pray every day. Why? Because there's something inside of us that is built to pray. But why do we pray? It turns out that our motivations matter. Jesus says that we can have the wrong motivations for our prayers. In verses 5 and 6, Jesus speaks about hypocrites. He warns us against being like the hypocrites. Now, when Jesus talks about hypocrites in Matthew chapter 6, he's talking about that same group of Jewish religious leaders that he was talking about in Matthew chapter 5. And in Jesus' day, the Jewish religious leaders, some of them had the habit of praying very publicly. Jesus talks about praying on street corners. They would pray loudly and they would use flowering phrases. I don't know that they did it to be noticed, but they certainly were noticed. And Jesus said, your prayer life is to look nothing like that. Instead, Jesus says, when you are to pray, you are to go into a secret place, your own room, close the door, pray to your Father, do that on your own, because your Father who is in heaven will see you, and that is the prayer that God rewards. 
Now, what can these wrong motivations look like for prayer today? Because you have to admit, it's probably not going to be terribly rewarded in our society and culture to go out on the street and pray. People are not necessarily going to think better of us as a result. But at the same time, we recognize that among Christian circles, in religious circles, there are certainly people who are known for being able to pray. And, and sometimes people pray in public and Christian circles in, in ways that get them noticed. At the same time, we have to recognize that what Jesus is talking about here when he says, be careful about praying to be noticed, that he is cautioning us against praying in such a way that we are really more preaching than we are praying. Beyond that is Jesus challenges us to think about the ones for whom we are praying. You may have found yourself using a phrase that actually is a bit problematic. You may have been invited to pray in public, and you may say about praying in front of the other people, I could never do that. I don't know what to say. The reason not knowing what to say in prayer is such a problem is because we're afraid of being embarrassed in front of other people. In other words, our fundamental motivation in prayer has silently and secretly become the esteem of other people. Jesus is saying we cannot pray in order to impress other people. Instead, what Jesus is telling us to do is to focus on praying for the audience of God and God alone. Jesus tells us pragmatically to go into a room by ourselves, close the door, pray, and make sure that God our Father is the audience for that prayer. Now, when Jesus says that, we have to ask the question, does that mean that Jesus is saying that we should never pray in public? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Clearly, we pray in public. We do that here in worship. Does Jesus mean that we can only pray alone by ourselves? No, clearly not. It's a good thing when we gather together in small groups or on teams or with other followers of Jesus to pray and to pray out loud. Instead, what Jesus is saying is that we are to be aware of the one to whom we are praying and the one whose favor we are seeking. We are praying to God. He is our audience, and we are not praying for the esteem or for the opinion of others. And so we begin with our first don't. Don't pray to impress anyone other than God. That's the first of two don'ts. Our second don't is don't try to manipulate God with your words. If you want to have a rewarding prayer life, don't try to manipulate God with your words. Jesus continues with this warning in verses 7 and 8 where he says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, Having told us that there can be a wrong motivation for praying, Jesus is saying now there can be a wrong manner in praying. Jesus is saying here that there are prayers that the Gentiles or the, the pagans, the non-Jews, the people who were not relating to God and not relating to God through him, there was a pattern to their praying. In our Bibles, the, the Bible translated, translated with the word empty. They pile up empty phrases. 
in the original Greek, the word that Jesus uses here, uh, conjures up the, the idea of babbling. These Gentiles, these pagans, would babble in their prayers. They would use names. They would use phrases. Sometimes their words would, would amount to nonsense, and they sounded very much like magical incantations seeking to gain the attention of their gods who are otherwise unconcerned with them neutral about the affairs of human beings, and even sometimes hostile to people. Jesus is saying that's the wrong mentality to go into prayer with in the first place. Wrong picture of God and wrong approach to God. But what does this, what does this Gentile way of praying look like? Well, we find actually examples of it in artifacts from the ancient world, including the obelisk of Cleopatra, which contains on it an ancient prayer that shows us exactly what Jesus is talking about. This obelisk of Cleopatra we call actually Cleopatra's Needle. It's one of two obelisks that were carved over 3,500 years ago in ancient Egypt. And that obelisk of Cleopatra was transported as a gift to the United States from the government of Egypt in the 1870s. And you can now go to Central Park in Manhattan and you can see Cleopatra's needle. It was carved by one pharaoh and then later it was inscribed with a prayer by another pharaoh. Ramesses II. And the prayer that's on it is a celebration of his victory in battle and a prayer hoping for the blessing of the gods in the future. In the prayer that I'm going to read to you, Ramesses II refers to the god Horus, who is the ancient Egyptian god of sun and power and kingship. And Ramesses thought he was the earthly embodiment of Horus. You'll also read the name of the father of creation in ancient Egyptian mythology. His name is Ra, and Horus was the godly embodiment of Ra. So look at all these names. The prayer reads this way. The Horus, strong, bull, beloved of Ra, the king of upper and lower Egypt, Usar Mat Ra, chosen of Ra, created by the gods, who founded the two lands, the son of Ra, Ramesses, blah, blah, blah. What you see is how these phrases pile up, the names of gods, petitioning the gods, trying to butter the gods up and get their attention and seek them to bless you when otherwise they couldn't care less about you. Now, we don't pile up phrases the way that these ancient Egyptians do in prayer, but at the same time, if we're frank about it, we can at times begin to attempt to manipulate God ourselves with our words and with our prayers. Of course, our prayers start out good-natured and well-intended. We come before God and we ask God for something that we want or something we need. Frequently, we come before God and ask for something that we desperately need. And when we come before God and ask him for something that we really, really need, we expect God to give us that thing as we want it on our timetable. The problem comes when God doesn't give us exactly what we want and need on our timetable. And the question becomes, what do we do then? Do we persevere in prayer? 
The Bible tells us that actually persevering in prayer is an important part of our prayer life. So sometimes the exact thing for us to do is to keep on praying for this thing that we want and need from God. But what happens when we are disappointed and we don't believe that God is hearing or answering our prayers? That's when the manipulation can start. That's when we go before God and all of a sudden we begin in prayer doubting his goodness, doubting his power, and challenging him on his love. And then the words of manipulation can get raw. We can threaten that if God does not do what it is that we want him to do, then we will back away, we'll pull out of the relationship. And if the Lord, the God that we serve through Jesus Christ, will not give us what we want and cannot accomplish what we expect of him, then we may go find a loyalty that will. And that's how we manipulate God in our prayers. Jesus says, don't pile up empty phrases and seek by that to manipulate God. Instead, build your prayer life on an assumption of God's goodness. God is good, and he loves us. God is powerful, and Jesus says, God knows our needs before we ever come into his presence to ask him for the things that we need. And God is, from the beginning, favorably inclined toward us. He longs to give us the things that we want and that we need, which means that there is no magical formula that we need to pray when we go into the presence of God. There are no right words that we must say, nor are there wrong words that can cost us the blessing and the favor of heaven. So we have no need to fear because God is good, God is powerful, and God loves us. So we must not, in our prayers, try to manipulate God with our words. That's the second of two don'ts that Jesus gives us. And now we flip and we find the do's that Jesus gives to us. And the first of those do's is do. Do focus on who God is and what he's doing in your prayers. Do focus on who God is and what he's doing in your prayers. And Jesus challenges us to do this in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, where he says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And now we begin the first half of what is Jesus' model prayer. He says to us, pray then like this. So Jesus is intentionally teaching us how to pray. We call this prayer commonly the Lord's Prayer. Now, it is not a bad thing to memorize this prayer and to say this prayer word for word. Particularly, it's not a bad thing if we don't treat it as an empty ritual or as a piece of magical incantation. We can memorize this prayer and repeat it over and over again if we want to. At the same time, that's not really what Jesus is giving us here. He's not giving us a prayer that is meant to be recited over and over again. Instead, he's giving us a pattern for praying. He's showing us what a full and robust prayer life looks like. And so let's break down those components and see what it is that Jesus is really telling us to do. Because it begins with Jesus telling us to lean into our relationship with him. He begins his prayer, our Father in heaven. What an amazing thing that he begins this prayer with because he's saying that God who is in heaven, the Lord God, the creator of the universe, is our father, and we get to call on him that way. 
This is the relationship that Jesus, God the Son, had with God the Father. God the Father is his Father. And Jesus is telling us that we now have access to that very same relationship ourselves. If we are followers of Jesus, then God is our Father in heaven. And we begin by relating to God, by calling him by name and establishing the relationship that we have with him. So you're relating to God in prayer first. Secondly, Jesus is demonstrating that we praise God. Jesus continues, and he says, hallowed be your name. To be hallowed means to be made holy. And when we say that God's name is to be hallowed, it doesn't mean that we are all of a sudden making God's name holy. God's name is already holy. And anything that we can say about God's name is true of God himself. God himself is holy. God is holy. That's one of his many praiseworthy characteristics. And so what Jesus is telling us to do here is to praise God. And so he's demonstrating that when we pray, our prayer life is not only a list of our demands that we have of God, a a list of our needs, but in addition to that, Prayer is a time, relationally, when we come into God's presence and we praise him for his many virtues and we thank him for his many blessings. Then we align ourselves with what God is doing in the world. Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, when Jesus says this, we know what God's kingdom is. We've talked about this before. God's kingdom is the place where God is in charge, where everyone knows that God is in charge, and where the fact that God is in charge changes everything. It means that there is holiness, justice, righteousness, and as a result, there is peace. Now, anyone who's ever been broken themselves Anyone who has ever seen another person experience profound brokenness, and anyone who has ever mourned because of the deep brokenness in the world is going to instantly recognize the importance of this style of prayer. Because since the fall, we live in a world infested with brokenness as a result of sin. And so when we pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're praying, God, would you pour your kingdom in this world so that there is holiness, justice, righteousness, and peace here and now to the maximum extent possible and use me to those ends. But then it also contains the prayer that we know that the kingdom of God is never going to come in all of its fullness until Jesus returns. And so we are praying as well for Jesus to return because that's when brokenness will be solved finally and forever. And so we align our hearts with Jesus' purposes, with God's purposes in the world. So we begin our prayers by focusing on who God is and what he's doing. That's the first of two do's that Jesus gives us. The second of these do's is do bring your deepest needs to God in prayer. Do bring your deepest needs to God in prayer. And in verses 11 through 15, Jesus talks about how we bring these deep needs to God in prayer. He continues, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So Jesus begins his second section of the model prayer by counseling us to pray, asking God for daily bread. Daily bread, is that not a fantastic image? It's built on the Old Testament experience of God's people, the children of Israel, when they wandered in the wilderness after God set them free from slavery in Egypt. Out in the wilderness, they recognized that their food supplies had run out, and they turned to God in hunger. They said, God, we have nothing to eat, and God gave them bread from heaven, heavenly bread, a sweet bread that they called manna. And manna was a blessing to provide for their needs every day, but God only provided enough manna for one day. So daily bread, manna, represents God's provisions for a day, but it represents as well our trust in him, that God who provided for me today will provide for me tomorrow. And it is a test of our obedience because God told his people, don't try to store up manna today because it's going to be rotting tomorrow. It is a provision It is an opportunity to trust, and it is a test of our obedience. And Jesus tells us, come before your Father in heaven and pray and ask him for daily bread. Ask him for what you need for today. And may that become a way that God provides for you, a way that you trust him, and may it demonstrate whether you will obey him or not. We come and we ask him for the things that we need on a daily basis. Then we come before God and we ask for forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, Jesus says. And in this prayer, he's telling us that we have sinned against God. And in actually the verses that we read, Jesus gives us two astounding images for the results of sin. The first is contained in the model prayer itself, and he calls them debts. And the picture that debt creates of sin is that Sin is transgressing against God himself. And when we transgress against God himself, it creates a debt. We now owe God something in recompense. Later, in verses that follow the the Lord's Prayer itself, Jesus returns to the topic of forgiveness, and he speaks again about sin. But here he describes sin as trespasses. Trespasses imply that sin is is a moral boundary that we should not cross, that we have crossed, and we have gone from territory that belonged to us to territory that did not belong to us. It belonged to God. And in transgressing that moral boundary, we have incurred a penalty for our trespass. And so Jesus says about our sin, go into the presence of God. Confess your sin to God. Ask him to cancel your debts. Ask him to cancel the penalties that you have incurred. Ask him to forgive you. And then Jesus says, forgive others in the same way that you have been forgiven. As God has forgiven you, now go and be forgiving to others. Jesus is telling us to pray and ask for forgiveness. And then Jesus tells us to pray and ask for protection. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What Jesus is saying is that in this world that we live in, this this world that he does not take us out of, this post-fall world, temptation is out there. Evil is out there. The evil one is out there. And Jesus 
is implying that if we faced all the temptation out there and all the evil out there, and the evil one, every time he would come against us, there is no way we would stand. Instead, we would fall. And so Jesus says, pray and ask God to protect you, that you might only face the temptations of the evil and the evil one that you can endure, that you can stand up under. Pray, ask for protection so that you might stand. So Jesus closes this section of the prayer by telling us to pray for protection. He's telling us to pray for our deepest needs, daily provision, forgiveness, and protection. Now, the prayer that Jesus models for us here and the prayer life that Jesus models for us here feels very much like the conversations that I had with my oldest son recently when he moved to Washington State. My oldest son graduated from college in North Dakota this past year, and after graduating, he recently moved to Washington State to start a job, which means that he drove from North Dakota to Washington State. That's a long drive, in case you haven't made it. And in addition to being long, it's lonely with long stretches of nothing. And so we talked frequently on the phone partly to pass the time, partly to check on him. During the trip, my wife and I had the opportunity to help him with some arrangements even along the way for the trip, and we had the opportunity to help him with some things that still needed to be handled by the time he reached Washington State. We talked. We talked about life. We talked about work. We talked about faith. He told us that he loves us, and we told him that we love him, and we are for him. And that feels very much like the prayer life that Jesus is telling us to have. We come into the presence of God, and we talk about things with God. We, we ask him for help. He helps us, and we serve him. We talk about life and ministry and future together. This is the prayer life that I get to have with my father every day. I tell him that I love him, and he reassures me that he loves me. And that's what prayer is like. It's a conversation with God, and that conversation with God is life-changing. It's world-changing, and it's relationship-cementing. And that's what Jesus is talking about when he implies that there might be a reward in our prayer life. When we pray to God, the conversation that we have is world-changing, life-changing, and relationship-cementing. And those are the rewards that Jesus is speaking about. When we pray, the world becomes different. We become different. And our relationship with God becomes different. That's the reward. That's what Jesus is saying when he says his Father offers us a reward for our prayer life. That's what I get when I pray. That's what I want for you when you pray. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon Podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. 
from all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.